Hey, welcome. My name is Tar George. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. If you are just joining us, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you could join us today. Uh, we are in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, looking at what the gospel is and how it actually changes us practically uh, in our lives. And so if you have your bulletins, you can flip it over to the back side. Uh, you have a scripture reading there, and to read for us today is Rachel. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the arrogance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rachel. Well, if you know anything about me, you'll know that I don't typically spend a lot of time on social media. But every now and then when I log in, I'm occasionally greeted with an old photo and notified of where I was or what I was doing on this date some 10, 15 years ago. You ever see that on social media? Yeah, it's fascinating. Not always in the best way either. (laughs) In this particular case, I was notified that 14 years ago this week, I was out partying at a certain nightclub. I was drinking excessively, rebellious towards my parents, engaged in a less than healthy relationship with an ex-girlfriend, and also actively questioning the faith that I was raised on. Hardly ministry material, wouldn't you say? I was intrigued when I saw the notification and it began this interesting journey of scrolling through a whole number of pictures and posts, looking back at some of the most ridiculous and some of the most redemptive moments in my life. It was hard to believe that God took that same rebellious young adult, brought him back to faith, sent him to seminary, and then made him a pastor 14 years later. My social media feed showed me all of that in an instant. You see, my ability to look back and look forward reminded me just how much my life had changed over the past decade and a half. And I would imagine that the same could probably be said about you and your life if you did the same. You know, as we come to our passage this morning, I think Paul invites us to engage in a similar kind of exercise. He invites us to log in, so to speak, and to look back and look forward through all the ridiculous and all the redemptive moments that have transpired in our spiritual journeys. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul, I think, encourages us to do two things. First, to remember who you once were, and second, to embrace who you now are. Remember who you were and embrace who you are. We'll look at these in the text. Well, the text this morning opens with a rather strong exhortation. We don't exactly know why Paul is writing this section, but he gives us a clue about his objective near the very beginning. 
In verse 17, he writes to the Christians. Look with me at the text. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The word Gentile that he uses here is meant to describe a person who is not a Christian. This is a person who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus. They don't have a relationship with God and are therefore not committed to obeying him with their lives. In other words, they haven't experienced the incredible new life with God that Paul has been speaking about in the previous three chapters. But, Paul argues, you, Ephesians, have. And so has every person here who has trusted in Jesus also. And it's here that Paul begins reiterating something really fundamental about the Christian faith. He's reminding them of how it is that the gospel has changed them from the way they once used to be. Why? Well, scholars think that it's probably been eight years or so since Paul first met the Ephesians and told them the gospel. You can actually read about it in Acts 19. And over a period of time while they've been practicing the faith, Paul seems concerned that they may be tempted to return to their old ways of living. He is concerned that they may be tempted to compromise on certain aspects of their Christian thinking and their Christian conduct while rubbing shoulders with the culture that they live in. Because truth be told, we all face that temptation, don't we? We all want to fit in. We want to be respected, accepted, and we want to be well-liked. There's an allure to the world and what it promises isn't there, isn't there. And oftentimes in our city, we can find ourselves tempted to think in certain ways and conduct ourselves in certain ways in order to truly fit in and belong with everybody else. And that's just the problem, isn't it, Christian? Because you are not meant to be like everybody else. As Paul wants to show us this morning, you and I are called to live differently. We are called to remember who we once were. And so Paul begins our passage by reminding these believers of how they used to walk and conduct themselves before they heard the gospel. He reminds them of how they used to once think and behave just like everybody else who didn't know God. Look with me at the passage. In verses 17 to 19, Paul begins to describe the life, thinking, and behavior of the unbeliever. He claims that he or she is trapped in a kind of futility Verse 17, he writes that they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, which is due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is uh, quite a description, isn't it? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would imagine that you might find Paul's language to be quite contentious. Maybe you're wondering, is this truly an accurate description of the life of an unbeliever? Is that what Christians really think of others? Because it sounds rather harsh, exaggerated, bigoted, and maybe a little unfair. And I grant you that. I grant you that. If I was a skeptic listening to Paul's word, I would probably feel the same way. We're gonna try to work through these verses and see what they actually mean in context. But as we try to do that with grace, I might ask you to do three things for me as you listen. 
First, I'd ask you to be open to the Bible's character. The Bible says a lot of things that are likable and easy to accept, as it says a great many things that are hard and difficult to accept, even for the devout Christian. It's possible, I think, to pick and choose what you like from the Bible, and to be sure many people do. But if you want to know what God is really like, you must be committed to hearing what he really has to say, even if it's uncomfortable. And so I'd ask you to be open to that as you listen. Second, I'd ask you to be open to the Bible's critique. We live in a culture that presently believes that unless you affirm and validate everything about a person's thinking, behavior, and choices, you must be fundamentally opposed to them and their good. The result of this is that we have great difficulty hearing any kind of negative criticism or judgment about ourselves or our values. Simply put, it offends us. It offends us greatly. And so we create these categorical boxes to process what we're hearing. Those who condone and accept all aspects of my life must be unequivocally for me. And those who condemn and reject these same aspects must surely be against me. Right? I want to tell you that those are categorical boxes that the God of the universe will simply not comply with. The Bible presents a God who is determined to tell you and I the hard truths about ourselves and our broken condition, while at the same time, at the same time, also telling us about his love and commitment to our flourishing. And so I'd ask you to be open to the Bible's critique also. And third and finally, I'd ask you to be open to the Bible's content. It's content. I don't think I need to tell you that the world we live in is not sunshine and rainbows. There's massive inequality, injustice, greed, and immorality all around us. And you don't need to be religious to see that either. What the Bible claims, what Paul claims, is that there's a source for all the evil and brokenness that we experience in this life. It is called sin, and it affects everyone, whether religious or irreligious. And in verses 17 to 19, Paul seeks to describe some of its symptoms and effects in all of our lives, everyone, and in the world that we live in. Now, there's a lot to unpack here in this passage, but if you follow Paul's structure, you'll find that a certain logic actually appears. Remember, he's describing what life used to look like for these believers, while at the same time describing what life currently looks like for their unbelieving neighbors. In plain language, then, he's describing what life really looks like without God. And in his description, he seems to highlight three aspects of the human experience that he wants us to note. First is our human condition, that is how we naturally are. Second is our human perception, that is how we naturally think. And third is our human behavior, that is how we naturally act. And what you'll start to notice in these verses as you read is that there's a logical flow that describes how humanity has gradually descended into this downward spiral of rebellion and hopelessness without God. Our condition before God affects our perception of Him, and our perception of God in turn affects our behavior towards Him. Do you follow me? In other words, how we naturally are before God affects how we naturally think about God which in turn affects how we naturally behave towards God. And you can see that logic laid out in our text. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 18, Paul highlights our human condition. 
He argues that everything he's described about human beings up till this point is ultimately due to a hardness of heart. It's a hardness of heart. Some of you might recognize that term. It's this phrase from the Old Testament that describes a person's natural tendency to rebel against God because of sin. It is a heart illness that hardens us to his voice, to his laws, and to his very presence, such that we naturally refuse God and we want nothing to do with him or the life that he has to offer. That's what a hardness of heart is. There's a medical condition I recently heard about called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's this illness where certain muscles in the heart become thick and stiff over time, which makes it very difficult for the heart to receive and pump blood throughout the body. What happens is essentially this, that the heart begins to block and hinder the very thing that it needs most for life and sustenance. There is no shortage of blood, oxygen, and life-giving nutrients being sent to the heart for the good of the person. But because of the heart's physical condition, it just won't receive it. Left untreated, it eventually leads to heart failure and death. And what Paul is saying here is that sin produces a similar kind of spiritual condition in the human heart. Does that the core of our being? It hardens us against God. And by remaining in that state, we ironically end up blocking and cutting off the very thing, no, the very person that we most need for life and sustenance. And that is God. That is God. And it starts to affect everything. In fact, Paul says here that our hardened condition towards God has affected our overall spiritual health. Namely, it has profoundly affected the ways we think and the ways we conduct ourselves in the world. Look at verses 17 to 18. Paul writes that our heart condition has led to a futility in the mind. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, it's important to note that Paul's not claiming that the Christian is morally or intellectually superior to the unbeliever in and of themselves. Not at all, no. Remember, this is a condition that affects everyone. And neither is he bashing the intelligence of anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. No. Paul is not saying that these people have no understanding when it comes to spiritual matters. Rather, he is saying that their understanding is darkened to some degree. In other words, they see some measure of truth, some measure of truth about God, themselves, and the world, but they really only see it dimly. Why? Because, Paul claims, the truth, that is the full truth, is in Jesus. Verse 21. And they don't know him. Jesus himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. I don't need to tell you that is a massive claim. I need to tell you that there are many religious and secular figures in history who have claimed to know the truth and to have the truth. But there is no one in history who has ever claimed to be the truth like Jesus. Which means this, that he's either a liar a fool, or he really is the son of God. And you must make your choice. 
It's popular in our culture to believe that everyone has their own truth. That's all well and good if it helps us get along, isn't it? But I would ask you, does your truth lead to eternal life and human flourishing? Are you confident about that? Because if you choose to reject Jesus, Paul makes clear that you and I will ultimately alienate ourselves from the life of God because of that ignorance. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I'd ask you to think very carefully about that. Because ultimately, the rejection of God in our thinking leads to a rejection of God in our behavior. Paul concludes in verse 19 that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What is he saying? What he's saying is that the rejection of God ultimately leads to a life that is opposed to him and the good that he intends. In other words, if God is not at the center of your reality, something else will inevitably take that place. For most people, it will be an idol of self. And what Paul describes in verse 19 is what happens when a person unreservedly gives themselves over to pursuing everything imaginable that this idol demands. The idol of self, you understand, naturally demands self-preservation, self-satisfaction, and self-actualization as its highest priorities. And Paul understands callousness, sensuality, greed, and impurity to be just some of the many results of serving this idol. It is an unrestrained appetite for things like money, sex, power, and influence with no regard for God or anybody else. It is the culmination of what ultimately happens when people reject God and choose to go their own way. And Paul is saying, this is how sin affects everyone, including the believer at one point. And so Christian, remember who you once were and how you once walked in the world. This is Paul's first point. You know, secondly, Paul asks us to embrace who we now are. He's been telling us what life used to look like before Christ, and now he wants to tell us what life ought to look like with Christ. He affirms in verse 21 how they previously learned about Christ. He says, you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What does he mean? He's reminding them about the gospel and how they came to be saved. He's reminding these Ephesians that they too once walked like their Gentile neighbors who didn't know God. They too were darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. They too once suffered from a hardness of heart. They too gave themselves up to callousness, sensuality, greed, and impurity. And so did we. So did we. But Christ came to save us from those things. And most especially, he came to break that power that sin has over us. You see, at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the guilt of our sin. He died the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven of all of our sin and no longer be alienated from this life of God that Paul has been speaking about. And then he rose again, having defeated sin and death. And what Paul has been reminding them in all of these chapters, in all of these chapters, is that when they trusted in Jesus for salvation, God's Spirit joined them to him in that same victory. 
men and women, do you understand how life-changing that is? So you need to think about it. Listen, I know that if you attend this church, you hear the gospel preached every week. But let me tell you, really tell you from this text why it actually matters. It matters because most of us functionally only live out half the gospel. And I'll prove it to you. If you were to ask the average churchgoer to explain the basic gospel, what do you think they'd say? They'd probably tell you that Jesus died to save me from my sins so that I can be forgiven and receive eternal life. Right? Yes and no. Do you know what is fundamentally lacking in that statement? Jesus did not just die for your next life. Jesus did not just die so that you could go live eternally in heaven someday. Jesus died so you could begin living with real power in the world now. Do you follow me? It's so important that you get this. You have to understand that for Paul, the gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. That is good news, certainly, but it's not good enough. For Paul, the gospel means deliverance from sin. It means radical power that is now available to the Christian to overcome sin in their lives and walk in newness. Let me show you what I mean. Paul, writing elsewhere in Romans 6, I think explains what the gospel means more fully. He says, do you not know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's talking about what happened when they first believed in Jesus and were baptized. He says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. And there it is. There it is. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, Paul says, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? The gospel is not just something you have been saved from, but that you have been saved for. You have been saved for something, and that is the new life, which Paul explains is no longer enslaved to sin, but empowered by God's Spirit to resist it and to be fully alive to God, just as Christ your Savior is. I mean, just look at this text. Paul is reminding the Ephesians of what they believed and were taught in Jesus. He says in verse 21, don't you remember what happened when you trusted in Christ? Have you forgotten what has occurred in your union with him? I assume not. He says, you put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt in its deceitful desires. It is dead, my friend. It has no power over you. Christ put it to death at the cross. But he also gave you something in return when you believed in him, didn't he? 
Your former life was jettisoned and it was replaced with a new identity that you now have in Christ. Paul says in verse 24, you put on, you put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see what he's saying? Christian, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. You have been given a new power and a new purpose. You've been given new desires to obey God and trust him, things that you didn't have and couldn't do before. You couldn't do that previously. This is precisely why Paul can say that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why? It's because Christians have a power and freedom now over sin that the world simply does not have. So you exercise your freedom, Paul says, and you embrace now who you really are. It was in the year 1863 that President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It was an an executive order that declared that all persons, all persons held as slaves are and henceforth shall be free. Union troops traveled great distances to many plantations and declared to these slaves that they were now free from the bondage of their masters. And oh, there was great rejoicing. There was great rejoicing because the idea of freedom had been almost unimaginable. But you see, after that initial joy, many slaves began to worry and wonder about what they would do and how they would now live. Some slaves were joined rejoiced immediately and eagerly left their plantations. Some could imagine the possibility of another life, and so they instead returned to their old masters. Some left to prove that they were indeed free, but then found themselves seeking the very same work at neighboring plantations. Their freedom from slavery was declared and assured. But in spite of that, it wasn't fully exercised. Why do I share this story? You see, the gospel proclaims that Christ has set us free from sin. If you have believed and trusted in him, you are no longer enslaved to its power. Paul is saying you are not a slave, so don't be a slave. You are free, so be really and truly free. And yet it would seem that a great many of us really struggle to believe and practice that, don't we? Like these early slaves, we either don't believe that we are actually free, or we find it really difficult to leave behind the patterns of our former ways of life. I think we know intuitively that we have God's forgiveness when we succumb to sin. We don't actually believe that we have his power also to resist it. Grace Toronto, I know that there are many of you right now wrestling with all kinds of sin. And for one reason or another, you've stopped believing that you can actually do anything in your power to resist it. So you've settled for something less than full and total freedom. Don't do that. Don't do that. If that's you this morning, Can I just encourage you? Can I just encourage you? You need to hear that in Christ, 
You have power to be free. You have the power to be free. I'm not saying that you're able to live a perfect, sinless life. Only Jesus has done that. But I am saying, or I think Paul is saying, namely, that there's power available for you to exercise in your fight against sin. Because listen, your freedom from slavery is declared and assured more surely even than the Emancipation Proclamation. So you exercise it. How do you do that? How do we begin to apply what Paul is teaching us here? Well, in the next several weeks, Paul is going to provide many implications of what it means to live this new life, all of which, all of which are conditioned on the basis of us understanding our new identity. So it is critical at this juncture that we learn to embrace who we now are and who we could be in Christ. Here's a few thoughts for you on how you can begin doing that today. First, learn to see Christ rightly. Learn to see Christ rightly. If you're here and you're not a believer, I would encourage you to consider who you currently are and who you could be in Jesus. There's a real temptation in our culture to think that we don't need God in order to construct the kind of new life that Paul has been describing. In fact, a recent Pew survey found that two-thirds of Canadians say it is not necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values. 67% of respondents agreed that it was possible by sheer willpower and positive thinking alone to live better lives and be better people. You see, most of us believe that we're generally good people. But like everybody else, we're prone to sometimes make bad decisions sometimes say hurtful things, and sometimes think evil thoughts. We believe at some level that people can be tempted by sin, by things like greed, power, wealth, lust, because we see these frequently at work in the world. I think we all sense in part that these things should be resisted. But the Bible argues that we're actually far more culpable and far more helpless than we ever dare to believe. Not only are we enslaved to sin, but we grossly underestimate its power over us and its work in our lives. And that's why, that's why we need Christ to rescue us, reconcile us to God, and renew us in this image. So if you're here and you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'd invite you to do that today. I'd invite you to do that today. Come talk with us after the service and we'd love to help you consider what it might mean for you to be a new person in Christ. See Christ rightly. Second application, learn to see your sin rightly. For the Christian, Paul wants you to know that sin is no longer has dominion over you. But it will continue to wage war against your soul all the days of your life. Your sin is a cancer and you ought to treat it as such. Too many of us, I think, are content to just tolerate the sin in our lives. We ought to be hating it and fighting it with all the strength that Christ supplies. So I need to ask you, what are you doing right now to deal with the sin in your life? Do you have a posture of openness before God? Are you willing to obey him in areas of purity and personal holiness? 
Are you open about your struggles with others in the church, trusted others? Have you sought any forms of accountability, prayer, or intentional fellowship to help you resist your sin? Do you practice, do you have a practice, rather, of confessing your sin regularly? Not just because you have to, mind you, because you actually want to. Do you long to be free of your sin? Do you increasingly hate it just as God hates it? Your answers to those questions may tell you just how casual or how serious your commitment actually is to fight the sin in your life. And I'd ask you to think about that. It was English theologian John Owen who famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's no small words. Learn to see your sin rightly. Then finally, learn to see yourself rightly. Understand that you were once darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God and hardened in your heart. But because of what Christ has done, you now have radical freedom and power. Christian, you have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, verse 24. Paul is not just saying that you've been saved from unrighteousness and from unholiness. He is saying that you have been saved specifically to be righteous and to be holy. And there is no one more righteous and more holy than Jesus Christ. In other words, through the gospel, God is on a mission to make you more and more like the Jesus whom you follow. In saying that, he doesn't mean that you have ceased to be you or that you've somehow lost your personality, individuality, or the things that make you, you. Rather, you are now a different you. You are the best version of you because you are now a person who you were created to be in Christ. So you embrace that new identity and commit to increasingly become the person whom God has intended. Remember who you once were and embrace who you now are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the work that you have done in our lives through the gospel and sending your son to die upon the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins. But not only that, Lord, so that we would have power over our sins. And so we ask that you'd help us to embrace this new reality and embrace our new identity in Jesus, that we would live lives of more obedience, more love, and more commitment to you all the days of our life. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, ordinarily, we would have time for Q&A, but because of the baptism and the God of work, um, we're omitting that section for this service, but I'd be very happy to stick around and chat with you if you have any questions, or you can email me at tarek at gracetoronto.ca. But I encourage you, to, if you can, to rise and join in our song of response.